We come in peace. Then let us go in peace. Let the girl come forward. We've been waiting for her all our lives. We are the keepers of the horn. It belongs to us. No longer. Who are you? Conan. I have heard of you. You know the legend written on the wall of the crypt? On the day of my birth. Then you know what will happen if the horn is placed back in the forehead of Dagoth. The god will live again. And we who give him life will stand by his right hand and rule the world with him. You will die in the great evil that will come from his rebirth. We will control him. No one is able to control him. His power and his evil are too great. Give us the girl or we'll take her. Enough talk. I want to show you a trick mother showed me when you weren't around. Welcome to Spellburn, a podcast covering the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game and old-school adventuring. It's time to party like it's 1974. This week on Spellburn, we're going to delve yet again into the mailbag of holding. And man, you won't believe how enormous this bag has grown. We've got letters stacked up to the ceiling. And with me tonight are Judge Job. Greetings, everybody. And Judge Jen. Hey, guys. And with that, let's go ahead and move it on over to Tavern Talk. And the first rule of bartending is this. GBTB. Go beyond the book. Go beyond the book. What do you have? Heineken! F*** that Tavern Talk. Okay, so here in Tavern Talk, we talk about what we did in gaming this week. It's been a little bit of time since we've all spoken. Uh, Jen, what have you been up to? Sadly, in the past week, not a whole lot of gaming. Most notable, though, is that our group started doing some super secret playtesting for the Lankmar setting. And that's Ooh, turned out... That sounds fun. Yeah. It, Not it a secret was, anymore, apparently. It, well, it... <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> you did some, it again. Uh, some selective playtesting. You know, a lot of people have played in the games that Michael and Doug have run at conventions. And the idea here is to make sure that the mechanics and everything stand up to a campaign style play. You know, something more than just three or four hours. Yeah, yeah. So that that's kind of fun. Um, I just started my group on uh, the module Beyond the Black Gate. It's a little rough because it's a fifth level module and we're ranging anywhere from first to sixth level at the table. Neek. Oddly enough, it it's still been kind of a cakewalk for them. So <laughs> I need to step up my game or something. Besides that, yeah, the, the usual first dead and, and a metamorphosis alpha, just kind of every other week or so. 
Um, how about you guys? Well, my gaming uh, week uh, hasn't been that, that, or maybe a few weeks now, um, hasn't been that packed. I, I started writing again, so I'm doing some writing projects. And uh, I went to San Diego last weekend and just got some card gaming in with some buddies and hit up all my old game store haunts. And That's uh, fun. Yeah, I picked up a copy of Sorcerer's Cave that I've been wanting to pick up for a while. And I saw a copy of B-17 Queen of the Skies that I really wanted to get, but I just couldn't justify spending that much money. So, Ah, uh, the joys of being an adult. <laughs> yep. Yeah. yeah. So my week in gaming was, or three weeks in gaming is just my weekend in shopping. <laughs> Any writing you can talk about? Uh, yeah, sure. It's, you know, uh, I had to do a little bit of extra stuff for the uh, the second printing of Emerald Enchanter. Very so, cool. Yeah. And in the, in the fourth printing Kickstarter, they already announced that, uh, that they were going to add the uh, Emerald Enchanter Strikes Back. The, the little mini adventure sequel to the Emerald awesome. Enchanter into the second printing, and I added uh, I don't know about fifteen hundred new words to the to the thing and fill it out a little bit more. Very cool. How about you, Judge Jeffrey? So uh, my group's been a little sporadic, but we did. Uh, let's see, we were doing the Dresden Files thing for a little bit, and the week before last, we started we we switched back to the fantasy role because they know that's what I like the best. And but and we're playing some fifth edition D and D. So we're actually doing a Rise of the Rune Lords converted. I, I, we're not doing the full adventure path. So we're doing that fifth edition D and D. It's okay. Yeah, how are you liking that the rule system so far? I'm not a huge fan of it. I mean, I, I ran it for a kids group. I've been running it for a kids group because that's the rule system they wanted. I'm like, ah, they're kids. They can choose. Uh, <laughs> you know, because I would I would probably have done something different, but uh. Uh, so I've run it for them, and now I'm playing in it, and I don't know. I mean, it's just not quite doing it for me. I mean, it's neat, but I don't know. What class are uh, you playing? I am playing a Dwarven Fighter. Okay. So, uh, you know, it, it's There's pretty basic. There's a lot of minutiae with that, yeah. There is. Like I said, we're only first level right now. And it's just, I don't know, the rogue's out there doing, like, I don't know, 14, 15 points of damage on his sneak attacks and stuff. It just seems pretty heavily powered to me, but we'll not see. Not your flavor next of session. choice. No, no, I like fantasy, and it's not bad. I mean, I, it's it's just not my preferred system. We're playing again this coming up week, though, continuing the adventure a little further, so we'll see how it goes. Maybe it'll grow on me, but uh, that's that's what we've been up to, 5th edition D&D at the moment. So Yeah, I doubt it'll grow on you. Yeah, I'm, I'm skeptical. But <laughs> After playing for for a while, a few months. Yeah. yeah, there's just there's a lot more fiddly bits in it, I think, than I don't know than it than it needs. Yes, yes. I mean, they tried, and I do think they made great efforts at trying, but there's still a lot of fiddly bits. They're trying to please too many camps at once. I think. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly the problem with that system. But yeah, it, like I said, it's good to get together with friends and hang out, and you know, roll some dice. So any systems, it's good to hang out. So yeah. Okay, so that sounds like that wraps up uh, this week in gaming. So with that, we'll move it on over to Summon Email. You've got mail. Message for you, sir. Summon Email. The following emails have been edited and content content. Okay, so now it's time to answer some email from our listeners. It's been really been too long since we've really looked at this mailbag. I know. I can't believe how large our mailbag's gotten. 
I I've never seen it this big, and and it it's moving. Wait a second! I think there's something inside it. Not oh, not something, someone. <laughs> it, it's, it's DM Kojo. Hey guys. Hey. Welcome Hi, to the show. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Oh my God! How long have you been in that mailbag? <laughs> <laughs> Far too long. There, there were <laughs> holes me, at the top, be a big right? Mail right? <laughs> yeah, sorry for the lack of uh, episodes recently. I, if I had only known you were in there. <laughs> That's right. It's a bag of holding. So I had plenty of like foodstuffs and whatnot in there. So it's all good. Excellent. So for new listeners, uh, DM Kojo is a longtime fan in front of the show. And he's agreed to come on tonight to read his emails live on the air. If you want to get your chance to have your email read on the show, you can contact us at theband at spellburn.com. And uh, we do have quite a few emails here from DM Kojo. You can definitely tell he's been in that bag for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was just taking up the challenge that was laid out uh, about an all-Kojo show. (laughs) I didn't expect that I would be on reading my own emails, but (laughs) (laughs) it's a welcome surprise. We're glad you're here. Thank you. Definitely. So, with that, we do have several emails to get through tonight. So, let's go ahead and jump right on in. And, uh, DM Kojo, let's go ahead and read that first email we got. Email number one. Hey, Spellburners. Last episode, you issued a challenge of having a show based around my emails. Well, challenge accepted. I wanted to start out by praising Judge Jeffrey for his excellent Iron Tavern actual play podcast. I finally had time to listen to the final six episodes of this epic campaign, and it was highly entertaining. So, my first email begins with a request. I would love to hear an episode where Jeffrey and his players debrief the campaign as a whole. It is a very entertaining group to listen to, and I would enjoy hearing their perspectives on the campaign. My specific question is regarding high-level play. By the end of the campaign, the characters were all 7th or 8th level. I would value to hear from all of the judges any tips that you have for creating appropriately challenging scenarios when DCC characters get that high in level. More to come, me. (laughs) So, yeah, thanks for the compliments on the actual play. I still get emails on that. I uh, just got one earlier this week about someone saying how much they enjoyed the, the podcast. So I'm, I'm glad folks enjoyed it. And, you know, I talked to the players and tried to get them to do, like, a Q&A show. In fact, we were all – we had grand plans to do a live Q&A show at this past Origins, I believe. Um, that would have been cool. Yeah, because most of us were there, and we well, were going to – You guys get together every year there, right? Yep, we aim to get there, get together every year at Origins. Uh, it's a it's a grand time. Uh, we wander around the Origins, you know, talking about Satan's Glee Club and all of that. So <laughs> we get some weird looks even amongst the gamers. But I tried to get them to do a Q and A show once, and they just they, they I don't know if they felt awkward or weird. It's it's funny because you know you, we played the whole game on air in front of everybody, but then when it got to like, hey, let's do a Q and A Q&A show, they were like, oh, I don't know. Some thought it was cool. Some some were like hesitant to do it. So we never it never ended up materializing. I know. I think it would have been neat to hear their perspective on a lot of that stuff, some of the behind the scenes. But as far as some of the questions, I mean, the high level play in DCC, I think, was challenging to run. You definitely had to rethink your challenges because some of those spell results and some of the things the fighters could do, they were extremely powerful characters by the end. So, I mean, a lot of it, if you follow the course of the, the game, you know, the beginning DCC was pretty, you know, more typical low-level stuff. It advanced a little faster into, you know, what would probably be more like 12th, 14th level and, you know, advanced D&D or something like that. 
but you know, by the end, they were movers and shakers and having real impacts on the whole world. I mean, they hit different planets. They hit, you know, they walked into the thieves' guild with no fears, uh, things like that. So, <laughs> it, it is a little different, and I, I, I think a judge can adapt to it just by going with the flow and and just being ready to be spontaneous on it. That's really my best advice for that because they they can and will throw anything at you, and you just got to break that mold of allowing that high power stuff to happen. That was how it felt. Oh, I, the highest I've had at my table is sixth, and and in the spirit of disclosure, it's Bob because he hasn't missed a single game. <laughs> <laughs> I think the the toughest thing is just you know remembering everything that he gets to do now and coaxing the other players along because they haven't been there for as long and you know he's up to two attacks per round etc and they're all going oh well i'll roll my single die over here like no come on throw yourself into it you know you'll get there you just you need to keep showing up (laughs) yeah but yeah you got to push them i think it it, it does feel like a whole boundary has to come down to to get into that level of play and because I've hosted the type of table that I do, and there is a bit of disparage, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, um, a disparaging gap when you have you know a fourth level adventure with a sixth level player in it, because depending on his roles, he can skew the entire game. So, yeah. for things like that, I'll kind of just throw the rules by the side and restat a character on the fly or a monster rather yeah so the the highest i've played is six level just um play testing for uh conclave of wizards um so jeffrey probably has the best input here my my two cents you know just off the cuff advice maybe would be to throw some of those those devastatingly hard monsters at players like uh you know uh old, the, you know the older dragons giants and some stuff that is you know just probably totally unfair and then you know you're gonna have to let the players rely on their their own wits uh and ingenuity to to stay alive yeah that could work well too just trying to find those level appropriate challenges and there are some in the book that's for sure they're definitely in there kojo since you're here um Mm -hmm. how high have you played or run my groups, um, I got two groups, one that plays uh, online. It was an in-person group, and then I moved away. And then uh, I started up a group where I moved to uh, that plays live. My older group, they're on. They're right at the end of third level on the cusp of fourth. And we've been playing for quite some time, but, uh, you know, intermittently. You know, they spent a lot of, lot of we, when we first started playing, we, we actually ran a lot of parallel funnels and level one adventures so that they had like a pool of characters and gotcha. then kind of kind of merged the groups at one point and then they kind of picked their favorite moving forward. So, so yeah, so third is the most I've done. Tower Out of Time is the last adventure I ran uh, Ooh, for them. Good one. And then my other group, they're still uh, first level. They've been through... Uh, Several first level adventures. A couple of them are really ready to go up to second. So, oh, very cool. And then, then I'm running. <laughs> I'm just running like crazy right now. I, I actually started a, a role playing club at my middle school where I teach. 
I run a couple days a week for two different lunch groups. So I had one that was, they just finished Peril of the Sunken City, and we're going to level their characters up tomorrow. And the other group is at the uh, end game of Sailors nice. and, uh, and, and getting ready to go up the ziggurat. That's so, a lot to keep in your brain. Yeah. yeah, well, and I've got another group that wants to start, so I'm thinking of splitting one of the hours and actually <laughs> running a third funnel, which is crazy. But uh, as word's spreading, I've got kids coming and watching and really want to play, and I hate to exclude anybody um, that wants to play, but I can't stretch myself too thin. So I'm trying to recruit some of my friends that play in my group to run a separate uh, funnel for the new kids. Get some of the kids to run. Well, that's the goal eventually. I don't think any of them are fully there yet, but uh, there's a couple that have already piqued interest, um, may even be getting a core book at some point. Uh, so awesome. We'll see how it goes. Nice. But it's been a blast. So so I'm running a lot, but it's all mostly low-level stuff. Gotcha. All right. How about you reach into your mailbag, Kojo? I can do that. <laughs> Greetings, Judges J. I was curious about how you deal with failed skill checks in DCC and if or when you allow them to retry the skill check. Some examples that have come up in my games include a thief fails to pick a lock. Would you rule that it is beyond his capabilities or let him try again later? One or more characters tries to force open a stuck door but fail the strength check. Do you let the retry, them retry immediately or do they need to recover their stamina before attempting it again? Third one would be a character tries to search for a secret door and rolls too low. Do you let every character try the check? Also, do you allow the original searcher to try again until they find it, or do you rule as beyond their perception? Finally, a thief tries to read languages and fails. Would you let them try again? And if so, when? What circumstances would you have to change before they could make the attempt? Any thoughts you have on these or similar situations is much appreciated. Burn on. Hmm. Great question. So you guys want to tackle this from the top? So if the thief fails to pick a lock, uh, how would you guys do it? Would you uh, say it's beyond his capabilities or let him try again? I tend to let him try again, though, if they have like a, a roll of one or something like that, then they might damage the lock beyond repair. Like, then they're really foobarred. Well, yeah, it. I'm pretty much in the same camp. I get so burned with first ed where you can only try to pick a lock once. Period. If you don't make it, you just don't make it. So, yeah, I, I tend to bend a little bit just because I want everyone to explore all the weird crap that you've written, Job. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the way I tend to try to handle that and, you know, and stuff I've written and just in, in general is, yeah, I like Jeffrey's idea of, you know, roll a one and, and, and uh, you break the lock. Um, you could also do, it takes a few minutes for you to try to size up the lock again. Maybe you just roll for wandering monsters every time they try to try to pick that lock. Yeah, yeah, along those lines. So that'd be another uh, another idea you could do for that one. Yeah, I think that's a good option too. To if the it, to make the time passing have meaning, make there be another risk of them hanging out for so long. Right. Yeah, um, I think that's good. More often than not, they'll just say screw it. I can't pick it, and they'll throw the strong people up against the door, which rolls into the next one, you know, try to force open a stuck door, but fail the strength check. Right. Um, so, so what happens? So, so we go to the next one there. You, you're trying to open a, stu- a stuck door that the strength check fails. Would you guys want to let them retry again immediately? Or do they have to recover stamina before they try it again? What, what do you, how would you handle that? I often get people saying, Oh, well I'm going to 
help him or I'm going to try to help him. And so I just try to make sure at least one person succeeds in all of it. And then I'll, you know, add a point or two to the DC if there is one for each person trying. I may not be 100% consistent with it, but again, it's really all about moving the game along for me. Yeah, I let them retry as well. And this is a case where if you're hitting it once, hitting it twice, hitting it three times, I'm just picturing a bunch of people there slamming against the door a couple times in a row. Uh, yeah. Though the noise factor, I do try to take into account. So I try to think of what's beyond the door, what's around. I mean, if they hit the door once and they don't get it and there's something on the other side, well, those things are starting to prepare. They hit it twice and they're still not through. You know, it, it's going to escalate to the point they could come into a very well-prepared group versus not so that's how i try to add like an ambush to to yeah right. yeah like so you go from like people playing cards on the other side first door like if you get through the first time you probably get a little bit of surprise on them if you hit it and you failed those guys are probably grabbing their weapons if they get another round on it they've probably got ranged and starting to get a little line formed uh, you know but yeah just again make there be some potential pin and sometimes there's nothing on the other side and it just takes a couple times and you're through and right but that's how i how i would run it yeah well, I mean, I would pull in the same wandering monster thing. So you're making noise. Some other areas, not even beyond the door, there might it might attract the attention of some other monsters that are that are in the area. As far as you, you didn't really ask the question, but usually when I uh, one thing I've been doing for you know when people are are um, helping, I mean there's there's always the old uh, what was in forty it was like plus two per person or something like that. I've been doing. Um, uh, add the strength modifiers. Anybody who helps you, so that's you know. that's what I usually do too. Yeah. So if you don't have a strength modifier, you're like the puny wizard or elf. Just get out of the way, guys. Right. Yeah. You're not really gonna. He's like, Ugh, uh. yeah. Just, just stand to the side. Nice. I like that. I like that. Yeah, I do too. Uh, that might be my new constant. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, that helps because otherwise I always end up with the halfling. You know, that's the one that rolls and gets through, and that's all. Oh, ha, ha, the halfling got through. But if I'd go strength modifiers, that would help me not have that problem as often. Yeah, I mean, plus it, you know, it hues closer to the uh, to the the fiction of you know what the character's abilities are. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I like that. I'm, I'm think I'm switching to that. <laughs> okay, so everyone's had this problem. The character searches for the secret door and rolls too low. Uh, do you let the character try the check again? Do you let every character try to, the check, or do you allow the original searcher to try again and to find it? How, you know, how do you guys rule that? Maybe it's behind, beyond their perception. What do you think, mm. Jeffrey? So this one, I'm fine if every character searches for something. Everyone's got to get lucky sometime. And unlike the previous Hello. two, this is oh. <laughs> bad joke. We're twelve. Uh, yeah. Oops. <laughs> uh, um, so. But in this case, unlike the previous two, I don't like for the character to be able to try again. Because I feel, I don't know. And for me, it feels like if you didn't find it the first time, you're probably not going to find it again. I, there's probably arguments to be made against that. You know, I'm going to look harder now. But for me, you get one check, but anyone in the party can check. And if all four, five, six in the party want to look, I'm cool with that. So Now, do you have them roll intelligence for it or... Yeah, I'll do an intelligence or wisdom, depending. I'm probably flexible on that one to find it. So, D20 plus their wisdom modifier. I think I'd go with a luck check on that one. Yeah, no, that'd be good, too. If you ask for an intelligence check, they all start wondering what they're looking for. Yeah. And if it's a luck check, they tend to say, 
oh, well, uh, maybe we're dodging a monster that's following us or something. Yeah, that'd, that'd work well, too. I think a luck could work well. And in, in that case, at a full table, one person's bound to make that roll. In, in my case, I've had like a really bad fail with this before where there was like a dead end. You know, the players are like, okay, we're going to search for secret doors. And they didn't make it. And they're like, we want to try again. We want to, you know. And I let like three people search and they all just rolled like twos and threes. <laughs> and it was so obvious that there was a secret door there. And they were like, we want to keep trying. I'm like, no, you didn't find it. And then afterwards, I kind of felt bad about it because, I don't know. The play, it, the, it, I, it, for a second, it, gave, it left a bad taste in the player's mouth. So I think if I was in that situation again and they're like insisting there's a secret door there, I think I might just you know, give them a gimme on it because... It means they're sitting there tapping on every square inch of wall trying to find whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and especially because, you know, it was one of those, you know, grumble moments that, you know, you kind of want to avoid as a, as a judge. Yeah. And I think that's good. I've, if my players would give a more verbose description of what they're doing, I would probably be way more kind with a check or just give it to them if it was, you know... If they say they're doing something specific and it's like, that's sort of how the secret door... Like, I'm pulling the tapestry aside. Hey, oh, hey, there's a door behind... You know, I'm probably going to give it to them. If they're just walking in the room and go, oh, okay, I want to search for secret doors, I'm probably not going to be as nice as if they walk in and say, okay, we're doing this and this to a certain degree. Yeah, Yeah, you shouldn't have to pull it out of them. Right, exactly. Yeah, I'm of the same mind. I mean, if they come up with something creative, it's like, why even bother to roll? Like, that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, yep. All right, cool. Well, um, then I guess we got the last piece of this uh, question. So, Thief tries to read languages and fails. Do you let him try again? If so, when? What circumstances would have to change before you could make uh, before they could make the attempt? So, you want to try this one, Jen? I'm going to abstain from this one. I've never actually had a thief attempt this yet. So, uh, back to you, Job. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I've had it before. I usually will let them try again after a few minutes or something. And the same same thing. I mean, I always just kind of do the wandering monster check type of thing. I mean, if the players aren't getting the hint that roll, you rolling the dice means something, then you can always say, you know, you hear howls or clattering claws or something in the distance. Or right behind you. <laughs> so, yeah, on this one, I usually wouldn't let them try again. Typically... If they fail, because I'm, I don't know, I don't see them suddenly picking up the language. But if they could again come up with some reason, maybe they remembered some something they've got in their backpack that might help them with it, or something like that. Or if it's something that's portable, then I would probably make them wait until they could get it into a a, a place to research it. Maybe they could go, or you know, do what the best they can to mimic the language and, and take it somewhere else. Uh, you know, if it's writing on a wall, obviously that can sometimes be difficult. I probably wouldn't let them try again in this case. That makes sense. Yeah, I think so, too. Well, very cool. All right, Kojo, hit us with the next one. All right. Hello again, Spellburners. I would like (laughs) to hear some discussion on how Mighty Deeds work in your games. Beyond the rules as written, do you find that your players make custom Mighty Deed charts as suggested in the rules? How do you rule it when players score more than three on their deed die? I find myself struggling to be the only one describing the end result of the deed and have tried to push much of that onto my players. But many of my players are new to role-playing and need a lot of guidance. 
Also, have you had a chance to use the Steel and Fury book of Mighty Deeds from Purple Duck Games? This has been a valuable resource for my players in recent sessions. Thanks. Good question. I'm, I'll start with the book question first. I don't think I've brought it to my games yet. What about you guys? No, I haven't even read it, unfortunately, no. Yeah, I've skimmed it. I've I've skimmed, but I have not. I didn't bring it to the table, but I've skimmed it for. It's probably. It's. I'm sure it'd be good to mine ideas for and stuff like that. So bouncing back to the first, um, do you have players that have made their own custom Mighty Deeds charts? I did. What the? Uh, someone did a, a like a bar fight brawl chart. Uh, in my game, though I don't think we ever actually officially referenced it, but it existed, and he did make it. Bong was the one that had that, but we didn't we didn't reference it a lot. We, I mean, people that heard the group, they were pretty good at coming up with their own stuff, and so I very rarely used a chart. Uh, the chart was most more for me to gauge how cool should it be based on results. So if what they were describing and they rolled really well, then they probably pulled it off completely and flawlessly. If it was a little lower, yeah, you got most of it, but not all of it. But I've, I didn't do a lot of formal chart reading when it came to the Mighty Deeds. It was like, what do you want to do? Okay, make your Mighty Deed check. If you got it, cool. It, it happened on some degree of success. But I had a really creative group of people. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, you know, it's way different. I can totally see, like, if I was running for, I've, like, my local group, I could see maybe being a little wanting the chart and it would be useful tools to them to have to help but uh uh the online group they were extremely creative and it did i didn't we didn't use the charts much in most cases we don't have the people who wrote the email on the show with us but (laughs) i was curious about one thing on their email so you're saying how do you rule when players score more than three on their deed die right but that yeah because when you look at seven right so, well, you know, my my players are still kind of in the D3, D4 oh. range oh, okay. Okay. with their D dies. But, yeah, so, you know, uh, you look at the charts, you can see there's a distinct difference. You know, if somebody's rolling a 6 or a 7 on the D die on the chart, um, you need a 3 or, you know, better than a 3 to – or a 3 or better to, to get the deed. So that's what I was referencing was at first level you roll a 3, and that's great. You got your deed. But, you know, I mean, at, at level one, you know, are you letting them, like, decapitate the monster on a, uh, you know, okay. on a um, deed? Or or is that something you say, you know what, level one with just a roll of a three, you can't do that. But if you were a higher level and were rolling a higher die, then maybe you could really, get a higher result. I think it really depends on what they're describing that they want to do. You know, if they're saying, I want to take this thing's head off, well, you're probably going to file that under precision shot. And with a three, you get an additional D4 to your damage, I believe. And then it scales up by one die type. You know, if they're rolling a D4 and they get a four, then they get a you know, plus one D5 to their damage. Um, and really at my table, the precision shot has just become the default deed because I do have new players coming in. There are others that they're playing a dwarf, and this guy that's new to the game, he's looking back. He's like, oh, I can do pushbacks. Oh, I can do a rallying cry. Oh, okay. So he's exploring the different types of Mighty Deeds. And, oh, Bob's going to kill me because I don't remember exactly what he called his, but uh, he made a custom sheet for his dwarf, and it was all about, like, 
tunnel brawling. Yeah, kind of like a, a bar fight underground. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's pretty kind, awesome. of a, kind of a mix between what you would find at a precision shot and blinding or disarming. So you, you have a lot of options with those mighty deeds, but there's a lot of text. So I can find like your kids in your new groups. I can find them or see, I could see them finding it to be a little intimidating. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just to reference the back to the show episode six, I know I brought this up before, but episode six, mighty deeds done dirt cheap. <laughs> um, we talk all about uh, Mighty Deeds and uh, you know, fighters and, and dwarves. And um, if you go to the show notes on that one, there's a, there's a little uh, Mighty Deed of Arms record sheet um, to help people create their own deeds. Yeah, yeah um, that's what Bob used, actually. Thank you. Oh, nice. That was pretty cool. <laughs> Sorry, that was before my time. <laughs> so you just count, discount everything before your time, Jen? Yeah, what's up with that? <laughs> No, I'm I'm I wasn't part of the discussion back then. Sorry. So was there anything from your games to put in there, Job? Um not really. I mean I just to reiterate what you guys said, I'll give the people the uh the extra damage die. If it's enough for them to kill the creature, then sure, then they you know, you could say it was decapitated or whatnot. But you know, at the lower levels, you're not really going to be able to do enough damage, probably, to uh, to do a kill shot. Yeah, and unless they crit, as well as making a, a three or four on their deed die at a low yeah. level, yeah, you know, then maybe you know, double the deed damage or something. Throw them a bone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with a crit or something, and and they wanted to tap it. Yeah, what the heck? Why not? Yeah. <laughs> All right, three down. All right. Number four says, Hello, burners of spells. In recent weeks, I've begun to seriously consider running a game of DCC at next year's GaryCon. I've been debating on what scenario to run. I was leaning towards Mark Bishop's Nebin Pendlebrook's Perilous Pantry by Purple Saucerer Games since I've run it twice, and it was intentionally designed to be run in one session. However, my players are encouraging me to craft my own funnel to run to ensure that nobody at my table knew what was coming. Now I'm thinking this is the direction I want to go. Do you have any advice on creating a DCC funnel that could be run at a con? What pitfalls should I avoid? Having not run a game at a con ever, I would want to make sure it is an enjoyable experience for everyone. Now, I have an update on this email. Um, I've officially scheduled an event, uh, a couple events actually, at Gary Con. Um, one, one DCC and one Star Frontiers. Um, Ooh. So I'm excited about that. And uh, uh, the DCC one is going to be one of my own creation. I'm titling Ooh. it Island of the Gonter Zap, which you <laughs> oh, may nice. recall yes. from episode 21, the Dungeon Denizens winner that Ooh. my son Chase drew. All right. Um, Bravo. And this is, well, we're excited about it, and he's going to give me some help on that. And uh, um, actually, on a side note, and there's probably more information on this to come, but uh, he, my son and I have been working with Adam Miskevich over at uh, the Metal Gods, and uh, I think we're going to actually, he's going to help us publish a book of my son's monsters. How awesome All right. is that? Wow. Pretty excited about that, and uh, it, uh, we're still kind of figuring out how we're going to do it, but I know Adam has talked about maybe even doing a Kickstarter, so we'll see where that comes, but we'll let you know. How fun. Yeah, we're excited. Uh, he's uh, He actually, we went to... Uh, 
Yukon here up in uh, Ypsilanti. Jim was there running Mutant Crawl Classics, and then Adam was there. My son Chase, who's 10, got to uh, sit and spend a significant amount of time with Doug Kovacs getting art tips. You know, Doug sat with him for a couple hours and just going over his sketchbook and giving him advice, and it was really an amazing experience for him. Also, uh, Stefan Pogue. <laughs> I was talking to Adam, and he says, well, now he's talking to Stefan Pogue. And I look over, and, and my son's sitting between him and Doug on a couch, and they're just talking about his artwork. It was awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> I saw that picture cool. on uh, G+. Oh, yeah, it was so exciting for him. I mean, he just it just really what jump-started. What a moment. It's, oh, yeah, it was great. So... Couldn't ask for more than that. So, but yeah, so I'm definitely running my own thing. So, any advice you've got as far as how to uh, keep it uh, keep it moving? And well, you know, before we delve into this question, I want to hear more about your Star Frontiers game because <laughs> I'm going to be at GaryCon, and I, you know, yes. I picked up the box set recently of Star okay. Frontiers, and I hadn't read it in years, and I read through it, and it's like it's kind of like more like a minis game, so. I don't know. What's your take on the, like the combat in Star Frontiers? I never played it as a minis game, honestly. When I played it, I have not played it since I was a kid. But I've refreshed myself on all the rules and everything. But I, we never played as minis, mostly because we didn't have minis. But yeah, I mean, there is. I mean, there's the counters, and you can kind of move the things. Uh, I'm going to play it more theater of the mind for sure, just because that's my style. I don't really use minis for any of my games for the most part. It's uh, it's, it's gonna that be that way. the uh, so yeah kind right of, kind of your own hack of the rules yeah yeah kind of to some degree and then there's also some uh, third party stuff that's been published for it by DWD Games I think that you can find on like Lulu and mm-hmm. RPG Now and and they um they've actually kind of continued I don't know if, you know how how it's not obviously official but there's some interesting stuff in there they do like the Star Frontiersman magazine and stuff like that fanzine. Anyways, yeah, the scenario actually that I'm going to run is kind of based, uh, actually my friend Chris, who I know some of you guys know from Gary Khan, well, all of you guys know him from Gary Khan. Was he he the really fun guy that was hanging out with us at David Beatty's table? Yes. Yep. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, Yeah, Chris was the taller one, and then my friend Michael was there too at his first Gary Khan. But uh, yeah, so uh, Chris has been there the last two years with me, and he runs a Fantasy Flight Star Wars game based on the (laughs) A-Team. And I thought, well, that's really great, and if I get around to running some more Fantasy Flight Star Wars, I might steal that from my group. But then I was thinking, wow, what a great idea for a con game. So it's going to be kind of an A-team-themed Star Frontiers adventure. Okay. Well, that sounds pretty interesting. It's, we'll we'll see. I don't know. I'm still crapped in both of these adventures, so okay. hopefully they uh, live up to to what I have in my mind about them. Which day are you running uh, DCC at GaryCon? Uh, I think I asked for Saturday on that one. I think it's Saturday afternoon. Very cool. And then I think Star Frontiers is going to be Friday. can't remember. Uh, what time at this point, but uh, yeah. Cool. I was just going to say, to answer the first part of your question about which adventure to run, uh, you know, I would suggest anything that I've written. <laughs> probably your best choice. Well, I've I don't run, know, that I've, Wizard's Conclave, that's going to be tough to fit in there. <laughs> well, I, I, I've run uh, One Who Watches From Below twice, and I'm going to run it for one of my school groups here a third time, so it's always popular. Oh, nice. But yeah. it's pretty long. You know, I'd have to cut it way down huh, to make a con game out of it. 
Yeah, I, I often would jump to the end, but uh, I actually I, I saw you made several kind comments about it in the fourth printing uh, Kickstarter uh, <laughs> comment, so I appreciated that. Uh, thank you. Well, I wanted to make sure that people picked it up as a, as an add-on because it's definitely a fantastic adventure, and like I said, my players, both my groups, really enjoyed that one. And what was cool about it is they both took completely different paths and uh, didn't have a lot of repeat because there's different, you know, with the different directions. So, right. so it was really different. So you said it's the best DCC adventure? Is that what you just said? It's one <laughs> of the best, absolutely. <laughs> I don't, I'll be honest with you. I mean, you know, I'm not just blowing smoke, but, uh, you know, that one and Sailors and Frozen in Time are kind of the three that um, I make sure all my groups run through for sure because those are some of my favorites. Well, I don't mind smoke, so blow away. <laughs> Okay, so uh, in the second part of your question, so what what do you guys think about um, based on running a funnel at a uh, at a con? Um, I having only run one funnel at a con, and I was playtesting that one, so I couldn't exactly play with it and shift it around or anything. I think the the best point would be make sure there's a part where they can pick up backups, because otherwise, you know. They've got this time that they've scheduled, and they're dead, useless. You know, give them a reason to stay at the table. Yeah, I always like to be able to have refills in there. That, uh, and I think when writing one, make sure to leave some some reasonable reason why there's you know someone you can pick up along the way is is, is good in a funnel. And as far as running one at a, at a con, to me, it's a lot of the old funnel advice that we've had before. Keep it moving fast. Don't get tangled up in initiative. Do group, in, not group initiative, but player initiative, not character initiative, just so you can keep things moving through there and just, you know, keep things moving because you can get, with so many characters and people at a table, it's, keep everyone engaged and, and going as far as running. That's probably the big piece. If you can, you know, Gary Khan, you may not have a whole bunch of new DCC people, but if you, you know, some reference sheets, have those handy for people to have, uh, things like that. Cool. Right. Yeah. Good point. Another pitfall maybe to avoid is uh, if you have a lot of, uh, if you have more than uh, one you know, new player to DCC, you know, level zero is pretty simple, but um, you might want to spread them out around the table next to someone who is more experienced. And uh, then you can kind of deflect some of their questions to someone else at the table rather than having to stop all the time and and answer their questions. That's a good idea. Regarding the initiative, um, you know, I know, you know, kind of by the book, it's, you know, player initiative and then you go in order and they do their characters and go through. When we played in David Beatty's game, I thought it was cool the way he does it, which was, you know, you do your player initiative and then every player does one character you know, they choose to do one of their characters, then they kind of go around round robin, kind of like that. Um, right. That, that way, players aren't waiting for the guy before him to do you know four characters worth, and the people yeah. at the end are waiting forever. I thought that was kind of cool, and he uh, he actually used like those decorative glass beads that we could kind of like <laughs> mark which character we had had act. Mm-hmm. You know, and I I, I kind of like that. I've actually adopted that for my games. Yeah, I would be wary of Beatty's beads. <laughs> I did like the fact that he didn't have us running all four characters on the sheet either because he had more than enough characters based on the number of people sitting down. Sure. So hang on to that extra as a replenishment for later. Yeah, that was cool because he gave us four and said, like, pick three and to run or mm-hmm. two to, you know, and then keep the others as backups. That, that was a good idea, too. 
I haven't heard anyone running it that way, and I, that sounds like a pretty cool idea I want to steal. Well, if I've got a large table, even if I have new people coming in just for my regular campaign game, I'm only going to give them two zero levels instead of four. Because we've got so much going on at the table, you know, they're still kind of grasping the game as it is. So, you know, baby steps. Well, very good. So, that should be pretty helpful, actually. I appreciate it. Cool. How many more of these things do you have? Jeez. <laughs> I think the bag was pretty full. The bag was pretty full. Okay. Number five. Burners of spells. <laughs> I'm curious if you have used any alternate character classes that have been created for third-party products or shared by players on G Plus and the forums. I have not used any up to this point, but I'm considering allowing them for characters who survived the next funnel I run. Specifically, I'm considering adding the Barbarian from Damn Magazine, the Bard, Paladin, and Ranger from Crawl number six, the Dwarven Room Priest in Gygax Magazine number three, and the Monk from Barrel Rider Games, available at DriveThruRPG. I am also partial to the Gnome from my old D&D days, but am doubtful that any of my players have an interest in that racial class, which happens to also be in Crawl number six. Thanks. Well, I know Dwarven Cleric. That one's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, the Dwarven Room Priest looked pretty cool. <laughs> and that was too 4E for me. I was just like, no, nah, not reading this mm-hmm. one. Yeah, I skipped that one, too. (laughs) Sorry, Carpio. I'm pretty sure he was the one who wrote that one. (laughs) I think... Oh, you know, I'm I'm blanking on whether it was Bob or David Beatty that wrote a new gnome class for the Sanctum Socorum podcast companion. Hmm. And, And that one's free, available on RPG Now or the website. That came up just recently. We're like, oh, well, there's already one in Crawl, but you know what? This one's different and provides another point of view. The Barbarian, that, um, I don't know, 4E is a word for it, maybe? Have you put any of these into use in your games, Jeffrey? I had one of the players that considered, and I'm trying, I've been racking my brain trying to think if he actually went with it or not. I know he considered it. And either he didn't do it, or it was one of the zero levels that died, or like one of the early levels that zero to first that died really quick. So I don't think we've done any third party in, in my game. Though I know someone asked me about it. I can't remember what he was looking to play. It was something out of uh, the crawl, but I can't remember which one it was. But like I said, I, it must not have stuck long because I don't remember it, it being <laughs> in there. So either I killed it real quick or he decided against it when we did it. So we haven't integrated any of them in what was the monk from barrel rider games has it available it's a drive-through rpg product it, and it's is it um, just a one sheet or yeah it's like yeah it's it's just a, a few pages yeah there's, there's a few things out there by barrel rider i think a, a patron or two and so hmm, cool we'll have to look into that one yeah it looks pretty interesting so uh for me i've never run any of the the additional classes in a game I always want, you know, I always like, okay, I'm going to pull out my crawls and, and uh, make a pre-gen for this. And uh, then somehow, you know, I wait till last minute and like, oh, ran out of time. It's time to print out, you know, d- do a pre-gen on uh, purplesorcerer.com and just transcribe <laughs> it onto a character sheet and make a few tweaks to it. So maybe maybe what we need to do is encourage John Marr out there to uh, add some <laughs> of these classes to the character generator on Purple Sorcerer. Well, and that could be an idea for a con game as well. Make some pre-gens using the third-party classes. 
Oh. Now you tempted me to run a third game. Yeah, you could run the one who watches from below with a bard, a paladin, and a ranger. I mean, <laughs> okay, maybe it a could barbarian be good. too. I just uh, won't get to play much if I run three games. But but if you run four, you get the fancy T-shirt. I know, but uh, I'm six foot seven. The T-shirt's never my size. Oh, <laughs> no. but Chase could get it. He could. He could. Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of games I want to play in too, so I'm kind of balancing it. So, although I'm yeah. hoping to come down uh, Thursday, so get an extra day from what I usually do. So nice, very. Maybe cool. we'll be able to get some more in. Oh, I'm, I'm considering it. So yeah, I wasn't going to do GaryCon this year, but I changed my tune. I'm going to go to GaryCon and North Texas this year. Awesome. Woo-hoo. Yeah, and, and uh, John Hirschberger was bugging me about running games. I'm like, okay, whatever the question is, and whatever day, I'm just going to run a game at 10 a.m. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the other thing is there's so many good pickup games being run that yeah. I want to leave my schedule a little free. That's true. Well, good. GaryCon would not be the same without you. What about uh, the other two judges, Jay? You guys thinking that you're going to make it? I Yeah, I, I, I buckled under and bought flights already. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not making that drive in snow. No. Uh, I, I, <laughs> do we have any chance of coaxing you out, Jeffrey? I'm probably not going to make it this year. It just falls at a rough time of year. And it's oh. earlier, too. Yeah, no, I, that did help. That did help. But <laughs> You didn't book a room for me this year, did you, Jeffrey? I did not. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> I hope you're not counting on that. Yeah, no. I don't have a room. I don't know where to stay. Okay, I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll <laughs> no, sleep. I did not book you a room this year like last year. Yeah, I'll just sleep in Goodman's floor. <laughs> so, on to the next one. All right, number six says, Judges J. I would love to hear your thoughts on a few house rules that I use with my two DCC groups. I know we enjoy them, but I'm curious on your perspective as well. Number one, we don't roll mercurial effects until the first time someone casts a spell. I got this from someone else who wrote your show. If it makes the magic even more unpredictable and can seriously change the course of the game, which can be a lot of fun. Number two, I don't let players spend luck to avoid corruption. This is another example of how magic is even more unpredictable in my game. So, basically, you roll a one, you're out of luck. <laughs> Number three. When players become level one spellcasters, I roll their spells at random, but don't let them replace half of the spells if their selection is underpowered. I feel that players should be encouraged to find creative uses for non-offensive spells. Number four. We use an alternate spell burn effects table created by one of my players, my friend Chris, also known as Judge Hook. This table, which he shared on the Goodman Game forums, and I've got a link. Yeah, we'll put this um, in the show notes. Awesome that links the spell burn effects to the amount of points burned. This way, the more points you burn, the more serious the potential side effects. This seems like a good balancing mechanism for massive spell burns. And then the last one, although it hasn't come up yet, I plan on using Jim Sketch's body recovery house rules mentioned uh, on a previous episode. The next time a player has to roll the body of a comrade, Jim outlines the rules on his blog. Again, there's a link. These rules provide additional side effects beyond the loss of physical attribute point based on how far below your luck score you actually rolled. Thanks for the feedback. See, how do we want to do it? Do we want to do it one by one or just in general? Uh, One by one. Start at one. Okay, one by one, (laughs) starting with one. I've never done it that way, but it does sound... uh, The mercurial effects, the first time someone casts a spell, I haven't done it that way. It does sound like it would be more unpredictable and could be a lot of fun by changing the course of the game. So I I could see myself doing that one. 
you don't make a roll every time, though. Like, someone randomized him, right? Each time it did something different? Is that, or am I imagining that? Uh, Might have been someone else writing yeah. in. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I actually wrote in about this fairly early on. Okay. So. Yeah, I would, I would do, I think that sounds like that could be fun. Okay. I hate this. I think it's dumb. <laughs> don't do this. Come on, don't, man. Oh, it's been don't so much fun. Mercurial though. effects? No, it's, you never cast a spell. I mean, if the guy never ca- found the spell on the on the floor on the side of the you know rolled up uh, on the side of the road and picked it up and read it, sure. But the the dude, the elf or the dudette, at some point <laughs> would have tried to cast the spell. I, I I just don't. It just makes no sense to me that that they wouldn't have tried it once. I mean, if, if it fits in the story and they didn't try it before and they like, oh, I have no idea what happens when I cast a spell, then sure. But, <laughs> but yeah, I always, this, this was, you know, this one always bugged me. Well, a side note, I guess, on this is that typically the way I handle it, I let them level up right in mid-game. So if they hit, you know, the right XP, and I've done this in funnels up until recently, too, where I level them up. And then so it's in-game where they're getting their spells. So that uh, makes more sense. That makes more, you know, that makes kind sense. of like uh, you know, just from the ether. But I, I'm actually starting to rethink it a little bit, in part because John Meyer has created this awesome grimoire generator <laughs> that okay. makes this so much easier, and it pre-generates the mercurial effects too, based on the modifiers you put in. And that's actually saved me a lot of time and effort. And so I'm actually backing off on this one a little bit. I think with my uh, my school groups, I'll probably just you know do the mercurial effects ahead of time so they know. And that makes sense. I've done the same thing where people have leveled up, especially in uh, Sailors of the Starless Sea, because I've had a lot of groups get to the ziggurat and they're about to be wiped out. Mm -hmm. Like, all of them. So I let them just go ahead and level up or else that's pretty much going to be the end of the adventure unless I just give them all brand new characters. Mm -hmm. So, Sorry, Jen, I didn't mean to interrupt. What were you about to say? You're fine. Hello. Um, I'm... (laughs) I am a fan of number one. I'm single now, Jen. Shh. <laughs> I'm not. Sorry. I, Damn. Uh, I'm not either, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> Darn it. Damn. <laughs> You're the only one who's got the height for him, Gojo. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> so, mercurial effects. Uh, yeah, along those lines. Um, I'm on the fence on this one. If they haven't been rolled already, it's probably because the player's new to the game. I didn't want to take the time ahead of time. Yeah, or someone just leveled and just got the spell. Yeah, plenty of times we'll do character sheets with the numbers just already on them, you know, pre-generated so they can look up what the effects would be. Hmm. Well, I mean, for some of those, some of those uh, mercurial effects, if you roll poorly... You know, I was, my thought process, I guess, was, you know, they're never going to do this spell. If they it know depends that on somebody how long... They know, well, I shouldn't say nobody, because Jeffrey's players did, you know, the spells yeah. where somebody else dies. Oh, yeah. But, you introduce uh, yourself to everybody in that town, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I guess it, I mean, that was kind of the other thing that kind of was kind of driving it. But I, my players have shown to be a little more chaotic than I would have thought, too. So, uh, you know, this one might not be as as much of a... An issue anymore for me. I, I, I see where Job's coming from too on it. Well, and it also depends on how long they plan on keeping the characters. You know, <laughs> if they have a couple more in the bag that they can refer back to, yeah, they might just. Uh, we got a 
percentage of a chance of <laughs> imploding this particular plane. Okay. <laughs> Let's go. So your second question, right, second item on your list is letting players spend luck to avoid corruption, and you are not for it. I am not um, for it. No. Hmm. I you know I feel like you know if you're gonna if you roll a one and you're gonna get this corruption to spend one point of luck to avoid the corruption is just like I don't know part of it, is it just takes away my fun but um, <laughs> you know I feel like you know if if the players look at it from that perspective they're gonna be like well even if I roll a one it's not a big deal because I'll spend one luck point and what's one luck point out of my twelve or thirteen or whatever I got so um, I don't know. I like to see the corruption. It makes for some interesting game situations. And, you know, that doesn't happen a lot anyways. So when it does happen, I don't want to be like, they spend one luck point and take away my fire. I feel like if the people are trying to spend luck to avoid corruption, it means they're reading the rules. <laughs> and, all right, fine. I'll, I'll let you go ahead and do that. But I'm going to find a reason for you to have to make a luck check in the next 10 minutes. Go ahead and spend your luck down. Yeah. I'm the same way. You know, if you read the rules and you're that familiar with them, because I wouldn't, I wouldn't have remembered this rule. If they remembered it, I'm, you know, good on them. I, I like it when people know the rules, so I don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> My game seemed to be deadly enough. There was always a consideration whether they really wanted to burn that luck down or not. So, because there was times they'd debate whether they were going to take the corruption or not. And so I played it rules as written, but, uh, you know, I do get the, the DM Kojo's aspect of I loved it when they took the corruption because that was a lot of fun for me. So I could see why the, you would want them not to just, oh, oh, I'll just spend a point of luck and not take that. The actual play was deadly enough that I think they seriously debated. They valued those points of luck because they knew it could come in handy if they needed them for uh, not dying. Right. So. Yeah, I guess on a rela- I just thought of it, but on a related question, would you let a halfling spend luck for them to avoid corruption? No. Yeah, I, I wouldn't do that. Okay. Yeah, I don't think so either because that the halfling thing is on any roll. And the, the, and, and that's just a straight mechanic. Yeah, yeah. there's no roll there. So I don't think that would apply. That makes that sense. That would be my way to screw them over. <laughs> <laughs> now, one thing maybe maybe I would uh, – here, maybe I would go here is that I would say, well, let roll it first before you decide whether you don't want it or not. Right. Because um, it might be cool. Might be cool. Might get like donkey ears or whatever. I, some of the cooler <laughs> ones are. I don't, I don't remember right now. Mm. <laughs> and then more spell questions. Um, yeah, drive us on to number point three. Yeah. When, when players become level one spellcasters, you roll their spells at random, but don't let them replace half of them if the selection is underpowered. Um, I am 100% with you on that. Next. <laughs> uh, I I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. I, I like that rule in the book that you all you have is rope work and animal. Rope summoning. work can be offensive. I guess so, but you can't do any damage with it at all. I don't think. I don't remember right now. But okay. <laughs> <clears throat> if rope work is your most offensive spell, <laughs> then I am not averse to letting you re-roll some of those spells. <laughs> I guess I'm a softy. You are. You're a big softy. <laughs> you wouldn't yeah. know it based on what you write. <laughs> <laughs> right? 
<laughs> well, he's assuming those like, those characters got to reroll half their crappy spells. <laughs> right. <Hey. laughs> yeah, I I guess I'm probably a softy here too, and I'd let him replace. Just I, yeah, I'd let him replace almost selfishly, just because then I wouldn't have to listen to him whine when they were in some adventure, you know. All right, that's a very fair point. Spells, but yeah, uh, but yeah I, I'd still let them reroll half their spells. Have you now? Have you done this? How did how's it work? Does it? I mean, do you, how many times do you end up with a really completely useless set of spells? I mean, how many times is it truly an issue? I haven't seen it happen that often, but you know, I, I have. Uh, some of my players have really enjoyed trying to find creative uses, even in combat, for rope trick or ventriloquism or you know some of these types of spells and so i mean that's kind of the problem solving has been kind of half the fun for them but uh which you know it's more maybe because they're new players to the game and so everything's kind of cool and magical to them <laughs> yeah i i've never had to worry about this myself it's just never come up but i think one time it should have come up was the uh the pre-gen elf for the imperishable sorceress if you guys are familiar with that one <laughs> yes mm-hmm because I think that one is like the most offensive spell is rope work that that or um, maybe invoke patron because it doesn't have a patron on there and you could pick the patron I guess <laughs> be like right Ozzy Dahaka or something but other than that there it's like read magic ventriloquism and rope work I think is what the that elf has yeah as I recall nobody chose the elf when I ran that <laughs> I've, I've had a couple people pick it and they were like what the hell what can I do <laughs> <laughs> like, you can make a rope and tie people up. Like, oh, man. That's another one of my favorite adventures, though. I always run sorcerers. all my groups through that one, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Okay, so we're driving on to, I forgot where we were, number four? Number four. Sure. Yeah, I would be uh, totally in favor of alternate spell burn effects. Uh, I'm in favor of any alternative fumble chart uh spell burn effect so yeah i think anything it's more variety and then the mechanism where the more points you burn the more serious potential side effect even better because that's always a frequently asked question with the massive spell burns and, and stuff like that again when we've covered it earlier if you if you're going to get a greater benefit make the risk greater to do so so i think that falls in line with that and i could see myself doing that in a game mm-hmm. yeah i'm gonna make with the clicky and and grab this table i think <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, I've I've encouraged Chris. I think it's really well put together, and I've encouraged him to submit it somewhere, <laughs> you know, to somebody to uh, see if he could get published. But you know, yeah, I mean, the the idea you roll a, a d twenty and then add the spellburn points, you do subtract your luck modifier, so that helps you out maybe a little bit. But yeah, so I mean, you know, if you're rolling a three, you're got to notch your ear, you know, an acknowledgement of each time you've been aided by your patron. But if you get like, you know, 28, then you got to agree to eight followers of a patron saint who follow you for the next D20 days and probably at the most inopportune moment <laughs> demand his aid. So, you know, there's it's kind of like kind of just puts a little bit of a framework around, you know, what happens when they spell burn and, and what could happen. So, I, you know, I, I kind of like it. He's also got some uh you know random generated name chart here if you like you know build uh, you know have to like pay something back to some patron or entity or something so it's kind of cool but yeah i encourage people to go out check out the link in the show notes and go go see uh if it's for them because uh uh it really has made things more interesting yeah 
that's a good table. I liked it. Um, I wasn't aware of it until you sent it to us, so thanks for that. Sure. All right, let's try this on to the fifth point here. So uh, it hasn't come up yet. I plan on using Jim Sketch's uh, body recovery house rules. Um, so did you guys read those rules? Um, yeah, I've process. skimmed them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know I saw them earlier, but... Yeah, that, yeah those are in, like, pretty cool. 2013, so I read them a long time ago. Yeah. And, and again, I, I like the scaling of things like this, so that certainly seems like another table that's worth yanking and incorporating into a game. Cause any of that scaling stuff, or I, it just adds variety. As to opposed things. to just the straight, you're at a negative four for the next X number of hours. Yeah, yeah. so I, I think it's a good, good, good house rule. Yeah, it adds a lot of flavor. Yep, I agree. And you know, some of the tables in the core book are pretty lame like the fumble chart i think really need I like the yeah. updated fumble charts that uh they're that are, minimal that are there. <laughs> yeah okay well i think we've beat beaten number six under the ground can you take us on into number seven kojo uh, you tell i was getting into a festive spirit because it's howdy burn meister meister burners <laughs> well, regarding what does that mean you're drinking eggnog <laughs> watching too many claymation Christmas specials. Um, <laughs> regarding 5e D&D, it looks like a well-constructed game that could be fun to play. But with DCC RPG being my game of choice these days, I am leery of all the crunch I see in the books. However, I suspect that there are some things that I will port over into my DCC games. I was wondering if any of the judges, Jay, have experience with playing or running 5e. Also, I would love to know if you have adopted anything from 5e into your own DCC games. Thanks, and keep on burning. Well, Kojo, while you were walking your dog, we were actually talking about 5e. <laughs> yeah, I caught the tail end of that. So. <laughs> For me, I really, I just kind of preface it maybe with, I really like the advantage-disadvantage mechanic. I don't know that it would play well with the dice chain mechanic, but for other fantasy games, I would see myself using that. Yeah, but that's that's exactly you know of, my, of the mechanics introduced five E. That's probably one of my favorite ones, advantage disadvantage. But like you said, we've already got the dice chain in DCC, so like you said, I'm not sure it fits there. But easily in other games where I'm looking to give someone a little bit of an edge or a disadvantage, uh, or when I'm trying to give someone an advantage or a disadvantage, I would let them use those the mm-hmm. dice that way. Five uh, E in general, I mean, like I said, while you were stuck in that mailbag, uh, <laughs> it's a deep. You bag. know, I, I just. Uh, I don't know. It's I, I like hanging out with my friends, so if that's what they want to play, I'll play. But it's not my choice to do it. Like I said, it's trying to please too many crowds, I think, which watered it down a bit. The first time I actually played 5th Ed, um, it was an adventure that Bob had written for the opening of our new friendly local gaming store. And he did it almost in a DCC style, but it was a collection of four clerics because... With all of the crunch in there, there's clerics of different, I don't want to say schools because that's too arcane. but Domains. You know, yeah, they, they have different bends to them. And each one was individual and had their own shtick. And the adventure itself, like I said, really was something that would fit into DCC. So that's probably why I liked it. But... Yeah, I. That would probably be the only thing I would carry over into DCC, 
is because a cleric is a cleric is a cleric, you know, as it's written currently. So being able to flesh those out a little bit more or give them a sense of personality as opposed to, okay, hi, you're the healer. Let's go. <laughs> well, you know, I've played a wizard for a while and from first through uh, third level. And uh, I, don't know, I don't know if you guys have seen these criticisms, but, you know, as playing the game, cantrips are like freaking insane. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, they're I intense. Just cast, I just cast cantrips all the time, <laughs> like acid splash, poison spray. Like, I don't know. There's like no point in casting spells sometimes. I mean, <laughs> um, yeah, and there are other times where you still have to roll to attack, even if you're casting a spell in fifth ed. Yeah. And I'm I'm not a huge fan of that. Yeah. I really I really do like the magic system in DCC. You know, if I'm rolling to attack, it's rolling to get my spell off. Yeah, there's just a bunch of useless, crunchy things in there. And, and like Jeffrey said, they're trying to appeal to too many different crowds. That you know, To me, it just feels like, I think I've said this before in the show, they're trying to grab one thing from every edition and throw it together. Yeah. To appeal <laughs> yep. to somebody. You know, like, oh, slashing, bludgeoning, and all this <laughs> other stuff. And it's like, the, these weren't good ideas in the first place, so... <laughs> Why perpetuate them? Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I I guess probably the biggest problem is, is I, you know, just the design philosophy is that I think of people who like DCC and the designers behind 5e are just like at odds. Like when I, when I, I wrote um, actually like um, one of the early Watsy, um, what do you call it? The, uh, the D&D Adventurers League. Uh, Was it uh, the Encounters? Yeah. Adventurous League Encounters or something. I forgot what they called it. What is it? DDEX 1-5 or 1-4, <laughs> uh, The Courting of Fire. And uh, so it was 10,000 words. And so I wrote a DCC adventure. I wrote this kick-ass map. It had like these kobolds that were infiltrated the, the, the temple before you got there. There were these undead druids that had killed themselves and sealed themselves inside of this temple to protect... These uh, the the keys of t- uh, this uh, special relic of Tiamat, this this dragon scale. There were just undead creatures that were still in there. Um, there were the ghosts of all of these uh, dwarves that had been slain in here that Jeez. would maybe help you. And there was uh, like myconids. There was like fungus men that had like broken into part of the dungeon and and kind of controlled their own little section of it. There were there were these like Tiamat keys. There there was a different key for every head of Tiamat, and they were <laughs> broken out into different parts of the dungeon. And every room was trapped. You had to go to each part and put together the keys. And then there was a door. Once you assembled all the heads on the key, you put it in there and turn it, and you can get to the, like the final encounter. This arch druid Skovak, this uh, who is Kovax, but whatever. Uh huh. <laughs> they took it and they. Took, they turned 32 rooms into nine rooms that are like a linear straight line, and all of the different pieces of the key are um, right outside the door that you're trying to open. Uh, what? Yeah, uh, literally, this uh, is like one of the best adventures I ever wrote that will like no one will ever be able to see because I, you know, I sold 10,000 words to Watsi and the adventures on the cutting room floor, and they just like I don't damn. know what the hell they made out of it. It's terrible. 
<laughs> it's a travesty. I'm, I, I'm embarrassed I'm, that my name's on it, honestly. I'm impressed that you managed to cram all of that into 10K. <laughs> well, it's... Sheesh. Uh, yeah. Anyway, and sorry. I, the, I don't... Did that answer your question, Coach? <laughs> 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 yeah, but no, I. It's my job off the ledge. have more experience with it than I do, so I was, uh, that, that's good. Good information. Um, I think it could also really depend on who's running it for you. Yeah, if you have someone that's really into it and really liking what they're doing, you know, just like with any game, it could make or break it. You know, in in one of our groups. There's a gal running it that you know, I respect her for running a game, but she's kind of Mary suing it because her character is the most important one in the game. So she's essentially running a PC as well of all as well as doing all of the NPC stuff. And you know, so at the end of every game, her PC is the highest level and and the most crucial to the storyline. And <laughs> I'm just not a hundred percent sure how to come to grips with this one. So I think if it was DCC, that that might sway me a little bit more. All right, All right my rant, my rant was nowhere as bad as Job's. Come on, <laughs> <laughs> Job's is classic. <laughs> Do you feel better? Yeah, I guess <laughs> we can do sound bites of that one and be great. <laughs> All right, reach it, reach into that that bag, Kojo. Um, well, that's the bottom of the bag. What? Really? Yeah. Hey, you're slacking. Man. <laughs> wow. Slowing down. Seven was not enough. Yeah, seven with eight embedded well, questions in each. Right, Come on. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wanted to give you guys something to chew on for a while. So, uh, I think that wraps up the email section of the show. So, that means we rolled over to Patron Bond. Who are you? Your new lord and master. What orders from mortal, my lord? Oh, don't trouble. One thing I can't stand is people groveling. Sorry. Patron Bond. And this is one of the favorite parts of the show. We like to rate the people that are on our show. <laughs> <laughs> so, here we are, rating DM Kojo's appearance on this episode of Spellburn. Oh, we're rating his appearance on the show, not yes. oh, yeah. Kojo by, oh, yes. by himself. Correct. Okay. Just his appearance on the show. <laughs> okay. Well, you're not that much first. <laughs> so, Jen. It, it's always be first. Yes? What's the question? <laughs> Critical hit, fumble, hit, DM Kojo on the show. We got DM Kojo on the show. I think that's a critical hit just based on principle. Oh, that's kind. He He had to go walk his dog, so maybe not a critical hit with extra bonuses on his mighty deed but you know <laughs> we'll, we'll call it a critical hit <laughs> prevented me from having to clean up, up a mess in the middle of the podcast <laughs> hey bonus yeah okay job worst appearance ever <laughs> fumble critical fumble <laughs> no it was a great show thanks thanks for sending in all these questions kojo and uh and taking our challenge so, thank you for being here. Critical hit, right? Well, I did have to. I did have to check in with Job to make sure that that it wasn't just an offhand comment. I said, "Do you really want me to send in like a whole bunch of emails?" He's like, "Hell yes." <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't. I bet you didn't expect this. 
<laughs> no, this was completely out of left field, but it it was it's a lot of fun. Cool, and I'm I'm on the critical hit bandwagon as well. Great having you on the show. We always appreciate your emails, and uh, uh, like I said, it, it's definitely a critical hit. It was a good time. Well, I appreciate it. It was it's definitely a lot of fun. Obviously, I've been stalking these podcasts for a great number of years now. But you know, and plus having you know met you all at Gary Con, uh, you know, it's a the DCC community is a great community. You know, you guys really do a great job with this podcast. So I, I always look forward to the next episode and and what other people have to say, not just me. Um, <laughs> it's not just by hearing myself speak, but uh, I could not resist such a challenge. Well, and we definitely appreciate your support, too. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I mean, I've been hearing DM Kojo's name since, what, show number two? Yeah, sounds about yeah. right. Yeah, well, and before that, on the Wild Games Productions podcast too. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, besides, I mean, yeah, I've emailed obviously all those shows for quite a while, and then I did. Uh, I've been on Thakos Hammer a few times. Um, you know, because my before DCC, my campaign was a two E campaign. Oh wait, so. wait a second. That was that was the worst appearance ever on Thakos Hammer. No, what's that guy's name? He came on our episode, on our show and just murdered DCC. Oh. Damn it. Oh, Glenn. Glenn. <laughs> there you go. That's it. That's <laughs> right. Do you remember that? I do That's remember right. that. Yeah, that was before was... your time, Jen. That's okay. I like Glenn. He's a nice guy. He, he is. Well, he was nicer to it than I thought he was going to be, at least. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I think that wraps it up for tonight. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. See you, everybody. Good night, guys. We'll probably reconvene next year. Adios.